Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hello. Good morning. Well, uh, see faces of folks I don't know. Welcome. My name is John. I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. The, uh, the USC philosopher and Christian spiritual writer, Dallas Willard, had some simple questions for evaluating the effectiveness and the faithfulness of pastor-preacher types. Let me ask these questions. It says, does the gospel they preach and teach have a natural tendency to cause people who hear it to become full-time students of Jesus? So sitting under the ministry of, of a pastor, does that woman or that man, does their, the preaching of the gospel lead the people who are listening to think, I want to go and become a full-time student of Jesus? With those who believe that gospel that they preach, would, would those who believe it become his apprentices as a natural next step? And then he asks, what can we reasonably expect would result from people actually believing the substance of their message? Now, what's fascinating about this is that Willard's questions remind us that the gospel always comes to us textured. It always comes to us influenced and, and shaped by the ones through whom it comes. Marshall McLuhan famously said, the medium is the message. So imagine that you go to a wedding and the groom is not there, but the groom sends a proxy, someone to stand in for himself to make the vows on his behalf. That would be a little weird, would you agree? The, the proxy, the medium of the vows, sends a really strong message about just how committed that groom is to his bride. The medium is the message. Now, Willard's questions, of course, are not chiefly about the character of the preacher 
What he's really getting at is what is the gospel they're teaching? And does the gospel that they're teaching um, assume that discipleship is the like mandatory next step of putting one's faith in Jesus? Or is discipleship viewed as something that's just an optional extra? Nevertheless, Willard's questions underlie a reality that the message is influenced by the ones through whom it comes. And this reveals a really strange reality. That, like, I hope that you'll try and find an exception to this. I don't know very many more than maybe one or two. But a strange reality is that God almost always mediates His power, His presence, His promises, and His plans for us through tangible means. You can think of maybe the Moses story where Moses is able to catch a glimpse of God's presence as he's passing by. But God almost always mediates His power, His presence, His promise, His plans for us through tangible, touchable realities. So an example would be the water of baptism, that God confers forgiveness, pardon, washing away our sins through the waters of baptism. There's something touchable that assures us that we've been forgiven of our sins. We've, been, we've come out of slavery to sin and been brought into the freedom of the children of God. In a couple of minutes, we'll share a tangible means of experiencing God's presence and His power at the communion table, where God, who is unseen, gives us these tangible, touchable gifts as a way of conferring to us and assuring us of His presence and His power with us. Another example of a tangible means of God's presence and power are the Scriptures themselves. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. You've perhaps had moments in reading the scriptures where you were just flooded with an awareness of God's presence or God's power. You felt humbled in God's presence reading the scriptures. Another one that comes to us in the New Testament in particular, a tangible means of God conferring, uh, mediating His power, His presence, His promises, plans to us, is the laying on of hands. So this happens in a couple of ways in the New Testament. One of them is to confer healing. Scriptures say, if anyone among you is sick, let them call together the elders of the church, anoint them with oil, so there's another tangible means, and lay hands on them, and the prayer made in faith will make the sick person well. I think similarly, if the laying on of hands, especially in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus, it has to do with ordination, that there's a formal conferring of authority through the laying on of hands. And then finally, another one of these ordinary ways that God mediates His power, His presence, His promise to us is through people. So you perhaps could think of a moment in your life where perhaps you were down or you were feeling lost and you were wondering what comes next and you're desperate for a word from the Lord and some person intersected your life and they said the thing that you needed to hear. And though they were the ones saying it, you received it as if it were a word from God. Or they showed up at just the right time and, and the Lord took their physical presence and did something for you. God mediated His power, His presence, His promise, His plans to you through some tangible means. Now what's interesting is that God could have done this in another way. But God chose to do this through, through tangible means and often through people, including at times through pastors, priests, preachers, those kinds of people. It's interesting that today, millions of Anglicans all over the world are praying the prayer that Libby led us through just a couple of minutes ago. The prayer says, O Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. 
grant that the ministers and the stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, it's interesting, um, you know, we're new to the kind of the Anglican way of being Christian since January of 2020, and so I'm learning as I go. And it struck me in recent years that with these assigned prayers of Advent, that some of them are kind of weird in their tone. Last week, we prayed about the Bible. Grant us so to hear, learn, mark, and inwardly digest the Scriptures that it may change our lives. This week, we're praying about pastor, preacher, priest types. We're praying, we're praying about those who are teachers in the church. And to Willard's point, as weird as it kind of sounds in the Advent season, which is about judgment and repentance and the royalty of God and the coming king, it's a little weird that we'd be praying about pastors, at least apparently. But to Willard's point, should we not pray that those who preach and teach and those who steward the administration of God's word, should we not pray that those people steward their power and role well? I mean, isn't it the the failure of people like me who wear microphones on their faces, who abuse their power, that God's name is not honored? That in some ways the, the church in our world sometimes feels chaotic and many people have walked away hurt or limping from the church. It's right to pray for such things as we anticipate the advent of Christ, His coming, that as He comes to us weekly through the Word, that those who deliver it would do it faithfully. There are three prophets who are associated with this season of Advent. One of them is Isaiah. Rosie Kilgore, at the very beginning of the service, read to us from the prophet Isaiah. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And these prophets of Advent model for us how a a wise minister of the gospel will conduct himself or herself. Isaiah, in the beginning of, of his great work, is called by God to be a prophet. And in being called by God, he's immediately aware of his inadequacy for the task. The scriptures say, and hearing God's call, Isaiah reflects, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is given this worthy and noble task, and as soon as he sees God and sees the task before him, he realizes how unworthy he is. So he rightly humbles himself as he's called and sanctified by God. What's striking about Isaiah is he doesn't use this lofty position to bolster his own popularity. Isaiah is content as we read his work to simply repeat to the people what God says. And as God gives them these visions to merely say to them, this is what I see God doing. The second prophet of of Advent is John the Baptist. John is this wild man out in the desert. He's like, I mean, he's probably like a street preacher. You've driven, I remember when I worked at Asbury, uh, I'd pull off uh, onto 71st Street going toward 169, and there was often this dude walking up and down 71st with signs and just screaming his guts out, and everyone thinks this dude is bizarre. And John the Baptist was a little bit like that. But John had a lot of clarity about who he was and the part that he played in God's plan, John 1.19. This was John the baptizer's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. 
So his message is not, look at me and how great I am. Say, no, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Nope. The prophet? Nope. And finally they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John's message is, I'm not the guy. The guy is coming after me. And then the third prophet of Advent is John the Revelator, John who gives us the book of Revelation. If you're following along with the daily offices, our like Bible reading plan together as a church, we've been reading the book of Revelation. This is how it begins. The revelation from Jesus Christ. John says, I'm not just winging it. I'm not just expressing myself. This is the revelation from Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John's just saying, what what was passed on to me, I'm passing on to you. John is kind of like, uh, you know, John the Baptist is kind of like, you know, the dude walking in before the president comes in at the State of the Union and say, here comes the president of the United States, and the president follows this, John the Baptist. John the Revelator similarly just announces, this is what I hear God saying, this is what I see God doing. And what these three prophets share in common and what makes them commendable to us is how each in their own ways communicate, I'm not the guy. I am not the Messiah. At their best, they realize they're just parrots. They're they're echoing what was said to them. It's like the songwriter who says, I'm like a mockingbird. I've got no new song to sing. I'm like an amplifier. I just tell you what I heard. Now, it's inescapable that the, the personality of the preacher, the pastor, the one through whom you first hear the gospel, it, it's inescapable that, that their personality is going to be felt, those people that we sit under. And in God's bizarre wisdom, it was His plan that the gospel would come to us textured through people and through personalities. But to the best of her or his ability, the pastor or the preacher must make it their aim to be like Isaiah or be like John the Baptist or be like John the Revelator in that their message is ultimately, I am not the Messiah. Their goal must be to faithfully echo the revelation of God, chiefly through the Scriptures, to make the Scriptures, to make what God has said comprehensible to the people. And then here's the thing that's truly sobering and terrifying to those who hold that office, to embody the teachings of the Scripture to the best of their ability with humility in their own lives. And this is the thing that honestly, like, if if, if anything scares me in ministry, it's this. It's the idea that, that people in the church may be to a certain degree impressed by me, but my family all knows that I'm absolutely full of it. That would be like my number one fear in ministry is to be like successful publicly and bombing privately. So it's really sobering to hear the Apostle Paul say, follow me as I follow Christ. And another pastor named A.J. Sherrill said, every preacher, pastor, priest type to a certain degree must be able to say that, that examine my life and see if it's not in alignment with the teachings of Scripture. So I think that we need to faithfully echo the revelation of God to make it comprehensible and to embody it. But I want you to beware the preacher, the teacher, the priest who is driven not by some divine mandate or call, but by a secondary degree, 
by a secondary motivation. The thing that's animating them is the desire to be liked or to be popular, to be influential, or to use their position to amass wealth for themselves. Beware of such people. Now, you'd say, well, who can judge a person's heart? True. But to a certain degree, we can judge the fruit of a person's ministry. Willard asked the question, what is the natural outcome of his or her preaching? And if a community regularly leaves thinking, that lady is amazing, that dude is awesome, beware of such fruit. Think the kind of fruit that each of us would hope for in the church of Jesus Christ is that in hearing the proclamation of the word, that each of us are inspired to say, I want to go and wrestle with Jesus for myself now. I want to go tease out the implications of the gospel and the commands of Christ and its claims on my life for myself. In Isaiah's vision today, Isaiah is just echoing back to us the things that he's seen and heard. Um, Many believers have not adequately studied Isaiah 65, and it shows. Isaiah 65 is, is a rich vision that God gave the prophet. And in Isaiah 65, Isaiah details what the New Testament calls the age to come. Now, if you read the New Testament in particular, and they're talking about like ultimate hope and last things, You rarely read the scriptures saying, yeah, and such and such went to heaven when they died. The whole language of going to heaven when you die is is not stuff that you're going to readily find across the scriptures, but you do find languages, language like when Jesus appears or in the age to come, or you'll read language about the renewal of all things, the mending of creation. What's going on in Isaiah 65 is into the world type of stuff. And it's consistent with some of the messages that we've heard in recent weeks studying the topic of Christian hope. And Christian hope is not chiefly about flying away to some other dimension where we will live forever. Christian hope, read the New Testament, means the resurrection of the dead, that means renewed bodies, and the renewal of all creation. You can read Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21 and 22, 1 Thessalonians 4, and see, Christian hope means God returning, Jesus returning to raise the dead and to renew and restore creation. Listen to Isaiah himself. He says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I've been thinking in recent weeks about, like, let's imagine when Jesus comes back in 5,000 years after that, what are we going to think as we look back on life? What are we going to remember? What, I mean, what scars, if any, will remain on our soul? Like, in what ways will we still have kind of a limp from the life that we lived? Well, Isaiah says, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. It's like you've had those, those days where it was a really really bad day. Just a really, really no good, terrible, awful, bad, horrible day. And then you got a phone call, unforeseen, announcing some good news that you could not have, like you wouldn't even think to ask for, and the whole day is redeemed by this news that you got. And this is what Isaiah is picturing here, is that in spite of the many wounds that we suffer, the many ways in which God's creation has been marred, that the glory of what's coming will will be such that we won't even remember the past. These things will not come to mind. Isaiah says, in view of God's glorious renewal, the pain of the past won't come to mind. Verse 19 says, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. 
John, in his revelation, pictures the city of Jerusalem renewed in a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. And this like, is our new heavenly dwelling, renewed and restored on the earth. God says, I will rejoice over my holy city. And in that place, in the age to come, the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And then Isaiah goes on to name two of the greatest pain points that any of us ever feel in this life. One of those is uh, the premature death of a child. And and many of us in, in the church, too many of us, know what it's like to experience a miscarriage perhaps, some two, three, four, five times I know of people in our church or to have lost a child when they were young. And another one of these, these great tragedies of our world is a person who's, they're an adult, but they just went way too early. And those of us who've lived through those things and those of us who are near those who've experienced it have this deep instinct that this is wrong, that such things shouldn't happen. And in the Scriptures, we find that God agrees. Verse 20 says, in the age to come, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The Scriptures tell us elsewhere that in the age to come, when Jesus returns to renew and restore all creation, that death itself is going to die and even work backwards. Tears and mourning and pain will be a thing of the past. But what's really interesting, and why I think we should study this passage, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, is as it goes on, we get a broader picture of what Christian hope is going to look like, what we can hope for. We see the texture of life in the age to come. Verse 21, it says, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And what's striking about this is, does not this sound like work? But what many of us have known in this age is not work, but toil. And toil is the work that feels like it's leading nowhere. Toil is the work that diminishes your personhood instead of maximizing your personhood. Toil is working against creation, feeling like you're pushing a ball up a hill, whereas the work that God designed and blessed in Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of creation was to be this good and cooperative aspect of the world that He made. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God, uh, in the image of God, He made them. In the likeness of God, He made them. Male and female, He made them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the birds and the plants. Rule over everything. Work was a gift from God. And in the age to come, will there be a kind of work? This is what the Scriptures point us to. This sounds like building and planning. It sounds like tending and planting. And it will result not in toil, not in frustration, the fruit of our work going to someone else. Instead, it will result in eating the fruit of our labor and dwelling in the homes that we build. Verse 23 says, We will not labor in vain nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. Now, it almost feels like a conspiracy to me. I feel like I've seen many, many places. I read the news very broadly. I've seen articles everywhere about people conscientiously choosing not to have children. And it's like, as terrible as our world is, why would we bring a child into this? It feels like this is happening too much. It feels like someone is like pushing something on us. But there's the sense of the world stinks. Why would we bring little vulnerable people into it? 
God says in the age to come, this whole idea of like children that we're afraid to bring into the world will be a thing of the past. We won't bear children doomed to misfortune. For we will be a people blessed by the Lord, we and our descendants with us. Now, as you hear these scriptures, I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to reflect on, if you reflect at all at that moment when Jesus returns, think about what you think about coming next. I grew up with my parents having a stack of Far Side cartoons in the house. And for whatever reason, we always had them in the bathroom. So I read a lot of Far Side in the restroom. And they, of course, have the devils with the little pitchforks. And then they have angels on clouds. And for many people, this is effectively our vision of what comes next. Is sitting on clouds, playing harps, a lot of white clothing. And what we see in Isaiah 65 is a much more adventurous, textured, rich image of life in the age to come. And this image of the age to come suggests that there will be use of our intellect and our strength and our skills. And the practical ramifications of the return of Christ to renew and restore all things will mean there's holy work for us to do. There's, a, there's this great scripture in Revelation 22. It's almost a throwaway line. You've heard me mention it before if you've been around. And it describes in this new Jerusalem how flowing from the throne of God, there's a river, and on either side of the river is the tree of life that we first meet in the Garden of Eden. And it yields different fruits. And then there's this throwaway line that says, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And I actually really like the image that when Christ returns, there's going to be a work of healing of creation that we get to play a part in. That we get to somehow cooperate with God in the mending of this world that we both love and have a strained relationship with. There's going to be holy work for us to do. Now, in view of the present difficulty of being a person, of living in the world, I want to say to you, I think it is desperately urgent that we populate our minds with the truth of God's promises regarding the future. But because we aren't simply brains on sticks, education and information alone is insufficient to, to change us, to transform us. We need the truths of Scripture to make their way into our hearts we need biblical knowledge to reform our desires and our hopes and our loves and the longings of our hearts. And we need our loves and longings and hopes and desires to be shaped, and they're most often and most effectively shaped by beauty and by the arts, the things that compel us to affection, that, that compel us to having an emotional and emotive response, which makes it all the more a shame that many of our Christian songs and worship songs that we've inherited have a paltry imagination for life in the age to come. That if they mention what with the fancy Bible word of eschatology, last things, if they mention it at all, we have the moment that Jesus arrives and then typically us flying off somewhere else. We rarely see anything that even like sounds remotely like what Isaiah is picturing in chapter 65 here. So, this is a moment in the sermon that re reoccurs from time to time where it's John Odom ruins one of your favorite songs. Are you ready? So, a great song in several ways, but that I'm going to pick on today is How Great Thou Art. Forgive me. Forgive me. Baptists, forgive me. Forgive me. 
The last verse, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation, I'm on board so far, and take me home, oh, come on, what joy shall fill my heart. Take me home. Where's my home? Well, certainly not here. But what is the promise of the Scriptures? I would be so on board with this song if it were funded with the biblical imagination. It said something like, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and heal our world. Oh, that would sing better. Then what joy would fill my heart? Then I would bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. When Christ shall come, not to take us away from this terrible place, but to mend it, bringing true fidelity and justice to bear on the earth, that would fill my heart with joy. Well, there's another song, uh, uh, Hosanna, by some people <laughs> who've written many, many great songs. Uh, it's a shame that I dislike this song because of one line, because every time Palm Sunday comes around, we're like, what are we going to sing? Well, how about Hosanna? Yeah, except for that one line. So you get to the bridge, and it sings, heal my heart and make it clean. So far, so good. Open up my eyes to the things on scene. I'm on board. Show me how to love like you love me. Okay, A plus. So far, good prayers. Uh, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Good. As I walk from earth into eternity. We're like, well, dang it. Here we go again. Abandoning the earth. God's not going to, but I guess we are. Oh, we can sing better. And then one of the greatest songs of all time, forgive me, Amazing Grace. (laughs) It doesn't end here. Stay with me. You'll see. Amazing Grace just doesn't pique the Christian imagination for the age to come. When we've been where? There, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Some of the greatest like rhyming metrical structure in like all of human history. It's great. But when we've been there, oh man, what is the hope in how great thou art? It's leaving here. What is the hope in amazing grace? It's leaving here, not God coming here to heal us and raise the dead. I don't know very many Christian songs that even flirt with Isaiah's vision here. And most songs, if they cover it, just show us the moment when Jesus returns and have no imagination for what's going to come next. No renewed earth, no resurrection, little imagination for what millennia after the return of Christ is going to be like. Now, a friend of mine this week was reminding me of the relationship between our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors. This is like, for counseling types, this is cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, as Christians, if we think wrongly about the end of the human story, or if our feelings and our hopes and the things that we've been trained to long for about the end of the human story are insufficiently shaped by the whole witness of scriptures, it will show up in our behaviors and our life choices. And those behaviors and life choices will end up reflecting the same sense of toil and despair and hopelessness with the rest of the world. And if, the, and if what you understand of Christian hope to be us flying off, then it's understandable that you would think, what's the point of even trying because we're just going to abandon this place in the end? But the good news of the return of the king to raise the dead and renew the earth is that there is somehow continuity 
between the work we do now and the work that we're going to do in the age to come. So I think about different people in our church. I think about David. I don't know if I've seen David today. David's a guy in our church who loves the Lord, loves the Scriptures, and he writes these liturgies. Like, he doesn't presently hold a, a, an office in the church where he, like, broadcasts these or shares these, but the dude's written at least, like, 70 or 80 of these liturgies. He's meditating on Scripture. And I'm thinking about in view of the return of the king to renew the earth and, and that there's continuity somehow between the work we do now and the work we'll do in the age to come. I think about David's liturgies and I wonder, in the age to come, is David going to have like, you know, a, a recurring gig leading the worship of the community of, of the saints? Or I think about Blythe or others in our church who are nurses who give themselves to caring for people in positions of physical vulnerability and emotional vulnerability. Will God not use those skills that they're honing in this life to tend the wounds of creation in the age to come? Or think about Mike, who serves our church. He, he's been in so many of our homes as a handyman, fixing little problems, fixing big, putting up walls so our kids have like extra classrooms. Think about someone like Mike. Will Mike not have a role with this, this skill set, this posture of the heart that he's developed in mending broken creation, taking the leaves of the tree of life and applying them to those places where God's image and God's creation has been marred? Or I think about Kathy working with, with kids who are in a troubled situation. Or I think about um, Chase in our church who raises money for nonprofits all over the city. And uh, the, the parents of, of people in our community who have the unique gift and challenge of raising children who have special needs. And I think about all of us who are in our, in our own way are using skills and trying to bring them to bear in the world to, to, to affect some kind of good. All of us who extend mercy or compassion or justice in the name of Jesus. Everything we do to live in alignment with the truth now. Everything we do in His name. Will these things not have some kind of continuity? The Scriptures tell us they will. That there's somehow alignment between who we are and who we are becoming now and in the age to come. That the things that we do now in Jesus' name will be redeemed and vindicated and seen and somehow have continuity in the age to come. So if we are to change our behaviors and see them in light of the full witness of Scripture, we must then ensure that our thoughts accurately reflect the truth of God's Word and that our feelings, our hearts, our, our desires, our emotions, our longings, which are chiefly shaped by beauty and the songs we sing, we need those things to be shaped by the fullness of God's story. So I, I've been really influenced by this author named Andy Crouch. He wrote a book called Culture Making. He wrote one called Playing God. Uh, and in Culture Making, it's on, Playing God's on the Gift of Power. And in culture making, Andy Crouch says the only way to change culture is to create more of it. Seth Godin said the easiest thing to do is to react. The second easiest thing to do is respond. The hardest thing to do is to create. And so it's super easy for me to critique the work of other people. It's much more difficult to create. And so I was thinking about Amazing Grace. I don't want to stop singing Amazing Grace. I like that song. And so I thought, 
I'm going to write a new and, in my mind, improved ending to the song Amazing Grace. I know that I'm already speaking heresy for some of you. Uh, can it be done? Well, I sat down right there, standing up next to the piano, and I wrote one verse, and I thought, okay, okay. Uh, I think I have a little more to say. So I wrote another verse. And then I was pacing around the sanctuary, as I often do, and I thought, hmm, I think I've got a verse three. So I wrote a third verse. And then I was pacing around a little more, and like, ooh, I think we could write a fourth verse to it. Yeah, I'm going to write four new verses to Amazing Grace. And I did that, and I'm going to share it with you right now. Uh, for, for good or for bad, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really comfortable preaching. This is a part of it that I'm not as comfortable doing, but I'm going to do anyway for lots of reasons. I think it's going to be worth our while. Uh, I'm going to share this morning three original verses that you've heard before, the traditional verses to Amazing Grace, and then we're going to sing together four new ones that I wrote. And it's going to go a lot better if you will sing this with me. Will you please sing this with me? Okay. So to set the mood just right, this is what we call the Holy Spirit pedal. All right, will you sing with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord has promised. The Lord has promised good to me, His word my hope secures, He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Okay. Here's the new one. Sing it with me. The earth shall someday be renewed. The dead, they will be raised. When he who wears the scars of sin shall come with eyes of grace the tree of life will bloom again the sword shall ever cease the sons and daughters of the king 
you've made. You will not abandon these bodies of ours, but you will raise us from the dead and we will, you will transform our bodies to be like your body, clothed in immortality. In this world that you said was good and good and good and good and good and very good, you will renew and restore and wash from it all signs of the curse and the fall. Lord, I pray that as our minds take in the full witness of the scriptures and Christian hope that you would transform the hopes and the longings and the desires and the affections of our hearts such that we can be people who can endure any difficulty confident that any work of mercy compassion justice that we do in Christ's name that the good work you've given us to do in our lifetimes will be vindicated and we'll have continuity with life in the age to come. And Jesus, confident that you will return to enact all of your promises, I pray that you pour out your Spirit on us gathered here now and on these gifts of bread and wine. Through these tangible means, Lord, would you nourish and feed and equip us, convict and liberate us from sin, that we may live in the present as those who are aware of and living into the future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.